Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 1st of April with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues Simon Thompson, Harry Morgan and Peter White. Um, I'm going to go straight into the solar piece, the second piece, straight away. Is it really going to go 170 gigawatts? Is the money there? We've done this from a manufacturing supply side, but from the demand side, is the money, does the money there? Is the permitting there? Yeah, are investors going to go that fast? Are enough investors going to be found? Will India get its transmission systems right so they can install more? You know, all of these are questions that, that what affect about the margins of, of producers, of vendors. I mean, you... yeah, they're very that that is a, a very fragile part, especially the, the manufacturers. At some stage, the only point in being in this game is to have a monopoly and make money. When solar is the cheapest, you don't want to be competing with other solar to be cheaper still. Mm. You want to say, you know, we're 30% cheaper, that's enough. Mm. <laughs> we're not going any cheaper mm. at some point. But, you know, maybe, maybe, but that's not what uh, experience tells us. Well, it, you know, we, we were doing it on the learning curve, which means when you ship the same amount again, your prices come down by a set amount. Well, that's fine. You know, you know one year, two years, that doesn't happen. But three or four years, you've doubled the installed base. And once you've done that, there's all sorts of things going on. People are just getting better at installing. There are more people that have been trained on it. There are better better solar. There's cheaper balance of system costs. There's a lower price of floating. There's all sorts of things that happen. Anyway, so um, just talk us through that story, Andrews, if you would, first. Well, there's a few different ways to predict how much solar is going to be installed in the next year. You can look at how much demand there is, how much funding there is, whether the major markets have the proper transmission grid and permitting to allow it. Uh, But this time I looked at the manufacturing capacity And especially this year, there's something unusual, which is, of course, the polysilicon supply limitations that I keep on banging on about. But I really like them because they make it quite easy, uh, because they're quite a harsh limiting factor. Uh, And like I said before, uh, a a month ago even maybe, but it's still true, if polysilicon output globally only comes to 570,000 tonnes, and if they manage to reduce how many grams of polysilicon per watt they use in these solar panels to three grams on average, that makes a hard limit of 190 gigawatts. And when you get close to that, the price goes up even more because it's at a six year high right now. And it's causing people already to consider delaying manufacturing or delay projects. So that's why that's the, the biggest reason why I think it'll go to around 178 gigawatts is that there's this hard limit. And and the other thing that's quite nice and that maybe makes it quite easy to um, predict, although we'll see how it how it turns out in 12 months, is that, of course, the reason the polysilicon supply is short is because of demand. So it will go up as high as it can because there's so much demand. Uh, and, and that's really the very strange thing. I mean, everyone has been surprised by it, even the manufacturers, the analysts, everyone, is that the first quarter of this year has seen a huge rise in demand when it's usually very quiet in, in quarter one. Another thing I should mention is that we're still seeing the um, the massive Chinese factory uh, expansions. Looks like about 100 gigawatts per year. That doesn't mean 100 gigawatts of output per year. It means theoretical capacity. And I think a lot of it is just replacement for obsolescent stuff. Um, but there is a big increase there still. Yeah, you you do have to be very careful. We can't you can't just go with a supply side forecast. You, hmm. You've got to 
balance all the factors. You know, you've got. A, I mean, we we do need to have uh, some kind of um, rooftop forecast, and we need to see where it's trending on, on rooftops globally. Mm. We also need to see because. I think some of the feeding tariffs are expiring, and they're going to—they may not go up. And therefore, if it's all utility and the prices are going up, they may, as you say, delay. Once they delay, perhaps people stop building so many factories so fast, so that it flattens the curve somewhat. You know, that, and that's—we need to make all those decisions in a reasoned way, in a in a, a copy of. You know, I think you should just do an update to the existing forecast. Yeah, I mean, we we know a little bit more about what Biden's going to do, and and we can factor that in better. Mm. We can make our own uh, instead of taking his campaign promises and saying he's going to meet them, we can actually make our own guesstimates to to how much how much more America's going to install without perhaps getting carried away by the the SCIA's forecasts, which are always uh, way too high. <laughs> oh, well, it's not just them. It's it's Bloomberg. It's the IHS market. It's um, the Chinese yeah. Photovoltaic Association says something between 55 gigawatts and 65 gigawatts this year. And there was, for last year was too low by eight gigawatts. Yeah, within China. And China is typically about a third of the world. And like you said, Biden is going to be boosting solar. So I, I did look a little bit at the supply side. India has a huge backlog of projects because of its its unique sort of stagnation with all the labourers leaving uh, in 2020 due to lockdowns. But they'll be so, back now, won't they? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So. so so that's three of the biggest markets that are going to be expanding very rapidly. Exactly. If you can get the three biggest markets dead right, then, then the, the rest of the, the forecast. It's hard, though, because what's happened in the last two or three years is we've had some soft markets. When, when China got a bit soft, We've had some easy markets, it's like Spain and uh, and then suddenly Chile and then suddenly Vietnam, which absorbed a lot more growth than we could possibly have thought possible. And they aren't sustaining that level of install because the feeling tariffs have expired. So, you know, where's the next easy market? And if there isn't one, then perhaps it has to be in those three majors. It has to be in China, USA and India. Anyway... Uh, we'll, we'll we'll come back to that at another stage. It's it's it's, it's good that um, we've we've seen that supply side limit, uh, but we want to see um, if um, there are other limit, limiting factors. So then on the subject of Biden, Harry, he seems to be getting to grips with what's slowing wind down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a few announcements this um, this week really that have showed that. He's sort of got his head around the actual bottlenecks in the energy sector as a whole. I mean, we've seen today that he's released his the US infrastructure plan that we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I think it was last yeah. week, actually, with with huge plans to sort of boost the the high voltage power lines in the country. I think he's looking for around 20 gigawatts of capacity there and also extending how, those. How, over what distances? Beyond 100 kilometres, really, generally, is where you start to see high voltage lines come into play. Some of these will be, will be you know, 1,000 miles, won't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's very much the thing. It's quite interesting seeing the contrast of how he's viewing that to, to doing the sort of the Keystone pipeline, because they're very sort of comparable in terms of infrastructure projects. Approving these power grid projects and um, obviously rejecting these oil and gas projects really does show a shift towards electrification on the policy side of things. In terms of what we saw in offshore wind this week, it was really obviously a bit of a wind head myself. It was really nice to see him coming out with his 30 gigawatt target by 2030. This was beyond even what Optimus was saying, saying that he was going to say around 25 gigawatt 
parts and it was far beyond what forecasters including ourselves going back to talk about what Andrew Bruce was saying have said I mean we've said in the past we'd expect the US to have around sort of 20 gigawatts by 2030 whereas if if Biden can deliver his promise it would be 50 percent higher than that. He's sticking to the build American jobs around it and also the permitting process he's, he's attacking that. Yeah I think that's what I the real positive that I've taken from this promise personally is that I think that he has actually really identified and honed in on these specific things that have been the problems for US development. And I actually think is there has... a new head of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management? But yeah, because think... he's probably appointed a new head to that. And if he hasn't, that's probably going to happen. Well, what what he has done is he has set out some um, some mandates really for them in terms of how quickly they need to get going. Really, so they've said that they need to have 16 projects basically approved by 2025 and have that have gone through this environmental impact assessment that Boeing have sort of really dragged projects back with in the past. Um, so this should see sort of 19 gigawatts of capacity sort of in the actual construction pipeline by then, which will mean that that, that 19 gigawatts really should be installed by the end of 2027, 2028. I mean, we could see 10, 10 projects sort of enter that process by the end of this year, which would be really exciting. Um, and they sort of showed sort of the early stages of that by signaling that they're going to issue the sort of assessment for all, one of Orsted's projects, Ocean Wind, um, in the next sort of few weeks, which means that, that project will therefore be on track to be installed by 2024, part of the sort of first wave of offshore of utility scale offshore wind projects in the US. So Amanda uh, Lefton is the new director of... Uh of uh, Bone uh, in February and um, I, I, I'm not really sure what she's done in the past. I think he, she was, oh yeah, she was the Energy Secretary for Governor Cuomo of uh, New York. So um, you know, she's come up straight out of, of a state that's pushing wind. So she's going to be completely on board with it. Yeah, I mean, Cuomo just had, yeah, he has always been very progressive in terms of offshore wind. And New York as a whole has been really focused in by this new plan. The New York Bite, as it's called, has actually been identified as a priority zone for, for Boehm in the future. Nine gigawatts by 2035, you said. Yeah, so that's that's the New York target itself. And I, and what Biden has basically said is that that area needs to be prioritised in terms of development. I think that's really where we're going to see this finance diverse in terms of these new ports and these new factories for supply chain. Also, he's promised that there'll be between sort of four and six new vessels installed. And how are they going to be funded? So this is public funding. There will obviously be private capital that's sort of directed that way because of this, but there is a, lot, a, a very significant amount of public funding that will be going into and this. Public like, funding just goes in to make sure it's really profitable. And, and so it makes everybody queue up to join in. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 how this, these things work. That, I'm sure someone will, will run it, but uh, who is not the government at some point. When does that, will that be an auction or is, is that literally going to be some kind of bidding system or what's, what's going to happen? I imagine the government was essentially direct companies in terms of where sort of the port infrastructure that they're going to develop and then companies around that will probably have to receive some sort of incentive to build factories there and yeah probably some subsidies in terms of tax credits I mean that's what we've seen um, through his infrastructure plans that not just for offshore wind but the ITC and the PTC probably will see another extension sort of beyond the end of this year so that's another obviously bonus for renewables as a whole. I think the other thing that we've seen is that the US is going to provide some funding towards shipbuilders to make these installation vessels that we've, that's been a massive problem for the US in the past. I mean there's, right. a bit, there's none at the moment and I think that yeah I think between four and six is what they're going to aim for. But given the, the amounts of money that Biden's talking about, none of these co government costs are that huge to stimulate that, that, in, that initiative. No, I mean, I think there's one of the funds is sort of around sort of two to three billion dollars, which considering they think the sort of private capital expenditure in the industry is going to amount to 12 billion, 
uh, by the end of the decade, that's yeah an, a, a very worthwhile investment to be making. And, it, and it, it's absolutely nothing in comparison to sort of larger infrastructure bills that we're seeing across the US at the moment. It's going to be something we're covering for the next two years, I'm sure, you know, because they'll keep keep bringing new things and new things um, through, you know, whether they get permission for them through the Senate or not, there'll be new initiatives there. Um, it was really depressing. When I did uh, look back in anger, I included Saudi Arabia as one of the countries, one of the main countries, partly because of its energy energy use, but also because of the type of energy it used. You know, if Saudi, I can't ever imagine Saudi Arabia reaching zero emissions. But you did a um, you did a uh, a review of the country this week. I did. Uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia is such an interesting country in terms of the energy transition because it's it almost just represents the past, really, in terms of how it's based. Um, we were obviously planning on writing this this country profile up, but sort of what was good to see this week is that they actually promised that they were going to try and cut their electricity emissions in half by 2030 which considering the sort of scale of the the problem in in Saudi Arabia is is encouraging to see I guess I mean they've got virtually no renewables installed at all at the moment I mean they're one of the only countries in the world that uses oil to generate electricity which is which is pretty mental when you think about it pretty disgusting yeah Mm. the thing is we've never seen them uh, we've seen them commit and then they 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 change their mind uh, there was going to be some one or 1.2 or two gigawatts of solar installed in the last couple of years and it just it was mentioned two or three times it was promised by one of the ministries and it just didn't materialize and no one even said anything about why it was cancelled it just didn't just didn't didn't turn up the, the the interesting idea i think is the trees the idea that they're going to put in 40 billion trees because where people have wanted to combat desert, um, putting in trees is one of the most effective ways of keeping moisture in the, in the soil and stopping it turning into desert and stopping wind flowing right the way across it. If, if they really do put that, that 40 billion trees in, in such a small area, its climate is going to change. I think the the one thing that I think we, you can say about Saudi Arabia this time around is that while their promises in the past might have been a little bit of greenwashing in terms of global policy, I think this time they really do have to be aware of peak oil as a, as a concept and that oil, which represents nearly half of their GDP, really is, isn't going to be an industry that can continue to sustain that. So I think this sort of shift towards renewables and probably primarily a shift towards production of green hydrogen and green ammonia is really where they're going to see the sort of potential to replace one export industry with another. Yeah, let's hope they don't end up burning petroleum to create blue hydrogen um, or anything daft like that, uh, because they, they they will. I mean, because they, they uh, it's controlled by so few people. It is just a royal family. Um, Favour can shift uh, within the family and it's not not political, it's personal. Uh, moving on, I just, um, yeah, I did, um, on last Friday, attended um, that press conference with Jennifer Granholm uh, and saw her give away $128 million for uh, solar. And it was a bit of a comeback for concentrated solar power in the fact that they've got a, a new version of it coming along that's some kind of sanctioned by the Department of Energy. But the, that leads me really to your story. Uh, Andres, um, second time you've done a CSP story. This this one very original, or very different in Raygen. So the strange thing about Raygen is that who I who I talked to, is that they actually they still have the the mirror arrays, the heliostats to focus 
uh, a thousand suns of irradiation at the, the central receiver, but they actually have photovoltaics there, satellite-grade photovoltaics um, that can really absorb a lot of that concentrated light. But they're and, on the tower, are they? They're not in the. the they, they still have mirrors. Yeah, they still the, have the mirrors. And, and it's it's photovoltaic on the tower, and then behind the tower there's heat, or inside the tower there's yeah, heat. Yeah, it's four square metres on the receiver, and it's 400 10 centimetre squared modules, uh, really high efficiency, like 38.4%, uh, multi-junction, gallium selenide, I think it was. They don't lose as much efficiency when they heat up as, as silicon do, uh, does, but they do still lose some. I think they might start melting if you just... Yeah, you can't take too high. You can't... So uh, although they, they actually have considered uh, developing a form of photovoltaic that would actually tolerate 400 degrees Celsius heat, but uh, but for now they have a water coolant, which it, it has a dual purpose. I mean, it, it keeps the solar panels from getting too hot, but it also takes away two thirds of the power that this installation generates. So it's a bit more traditional on that side. It has the heat. It doesn't go above 90 degrees uh, Celsius. So what we've been seeing with, with a lot of the other concentrated solar power is that they've been trying to ramp the temperatures up to a, to 1,000 degrees even in some cases, or at least above the 550 Celsius or so that you saw in, in the old CSP. But these guys are keeping it down at, at 90 and then they're taking that into a thermal pit storage, which they say the Danish district heating uses, and they're copying them on that. And then they also have a, a, another thermal pit, which they cool using either power from the grid, taken from a, mid, a midday solar supply that's really cheap, because this is in Australia, where they have huge amounts of rooftop solar, or it uses the electricity from their photovoltaics. So they have a cold pit and a hot pit, and they use that to, um, to turn an organic ranking cycle engine. That, what that means is that they have some direct electricity generation. Uh, they have some heat. Uh, they have some energy storage in the form of this hot water, and they also have the uh, the ability to take power. Do you know how big the amounts of water are? You know how much water is involved in one of these? Not not numerically, but they're pretty large. I think they're quite large reservoirs. They told well, they told me in their car war projects they're going to have. I think it was four megawatts of solar power and heat. And three megawatts of uh, a three megawatt output energy storage with 50 megawatt hours of of storage, so 17 hours from the water, and uh, yeah. and that's uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. It, it sounds a little bit like a weakness if they have to chill the water to power their engine, uh, but like I was saying, there's so much cheap electricity on the grid at midday because of all this solar that you can just do it very very cheaply. It's so, almost a so this this is probably a thing that that we you know you. I mean, that's why we've kind of happened across, you know, let's make hydrogen with it. Because if you have something the size of Saudi Arabia or the or any of the very large deserts like the Sahara, and you, you put photovoltaic on them, it, it's all during the day. The most Mostly what people want um, during the day is for that heat to go away. They want to create, they want to power air conditioning with electricity, or they want to do desalination, as in Saudi they do a lot of. And so the, um, it seems more sensible, it seems more mainstream to use a, a, a storage medium like hydrogen uh, than, than heat, especially in anywhere hot like Australia. The, yes, in Denmark, they, they do that. I've, I've seen it in Copenhagen. It's wonderful. You know, it's running... Uh, through the tube lines or the underground lines and if you go into these huge shopping centers you just walk in and you're warm 
uh, out of the freezing cold. It's brilliant. It's all the district heat there is great, but that can't be powered by solar. I wouldn't have thought in um, in Denmark. I think this is so. So it's it's like what? what uh, when, when, is this going to find a home? That, that's my that's my worry. And Sweet, I was going to ask, I mean, what are the uh, like opportunities for partnerships and side projects? Well, I think they, they've mentioned maybe working with these hyd- green hydrogen solar complexes because apparently electrolyzers kick out some heat and they can use the heat, uh, even though it's low grade, very low temperature, not really useful for much else. Uh, but their main their main strategy is simply to build grid scale projects just as really just as energy storage on the grid on the australian grid and we i think i think it was this week we taught we saw um two developments on the australian grid one was the australian energy market commission has proposed a tax a very low tax on midday solar generation from domestic installations and the energy australian energy market operator has actually started shutting down people's rooftop um, solar installations sometimes when there's way too much uh, at midday again because they're just there's just way too much um, and or, or to put it another way we don't have the energy storage yet we don't have the hydrogen yet we don't have this kind of project yet the water energy storage they're actually building a project that's very near to the Hornsdale battery that Tesla's making so much money off and they're, they're going to do basically the same thing they're just going to take this cheap electricity store it for a few hours and turn a profit. That's the main deal. 